You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 242 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Dean Koori because Alison is almost back, but not quite yet. So we've got Dean for the third time. Hi everybody. Hi Valerie. How you doing? I'm completing the trilogy this week. That's the right. Tril- the trilogy of me. The trilogy of you. What would that trilogy be called? I'm not sure, but I'm just thinking is the third one usually, mm, um, the first one's usually the better one, isn't it? So uh, <laughs> it'd probably be, uh, what's the return of the Dean? Is that, um, that's pretty good. Isn't that, isn't that, the, isn't that the third one of the Lord of the Lord Rings? Lord of the there Dean, Fifty Shades yeah. Dean. Well, the first one was the Fellowship of the Dean. Then we had the two, I don't know, the two presenters and now we've got we the return of the quit, dean quit while we're ahead, quit yeah, while we're ahead. <laughs> we want to give Goodbye, a big shout buddy. out to lois jane from egypt now lois jane has kindly left us a review on itunes and lois jane has said hey ladies i happened upon your podcast last week and already listened to two episodes i'm very new to this world of writers and a bit overwhelmed with all the resources and just wanted to say i find your show fun with many practical tips and links to further info. Thanks so much. Wow, thanks so much, Lois Jane from Egypt. That's so cool. Yeah. I don't. I'll pass that on to Alison. Um, yes. The other lady that she mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> I can't claim any credit for those ones, Lois. But wow, Egypt! You guys are so exotic. Well, yeah. Who knew that there were listeners in Egypt? Thank you for taking the time to do that, Lois Jane. And if anyone else has thirty seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes. We'd really be grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings. Now, I have a question for Dean because Dean actually, well, Dean, when he's not doing all things to do with copywriting and creating a course on how to write for real estate and touring houses for his real estate listings, he is also a copywriter at the Australian Writers' Centre. And one of the things that he does and does very, very well is the Q&A in our newsletter. Now, regular readers of our newsletter will know that there is a very quirky and often quite hilarious Q&A that appears every week in the newsletter. If you're not a regular reader of the newsletter, you should be, and you should sign up to a newsletter. <laughs> Just go to yeah. writerscentercomau slash newsletter. Because every week uh, there's a whole bunch of useful news and resources and Dean's infamous Q&A. Now, how would you describe, if for people who haven't read it, Dean, how would you describe mm. what the Q&A is about every week in the newsletter? Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of a, it's a little inv- uh, sort of a deep dive into maybe just one specific um, 
quirk, quirk of English language or grammar or sometimes punctuation, but generally it's just just a, a bit of an exploration into you know the difference between words why we why we have you know why we have a specific word or a, a, perhaps it's a um a thing that a lot of people get wrong um so yeah we there's english is full of so many different stylistic rules um hazards that you know people people are always getting wrong um things uh american american english does different to british english there's uh, it's a Pandora's box. It's just so, so yeah, many things. For example, yeah. a recent one that Dean tackled was where in the world the phrase close but no cigar came from. And we, also mm. and also things like, um, because sometimes I find it quite surprising when people say, when people write about their fiancé, but they spell fiancé wrong because, of course, it's fiancé with a single E for a bloke and a fiancé with mm. two E's at the end. For a chick, so uh, yeah, and and it's, he will tackle things like, well, what's the difference between rail against versus rally against? I know these are the things that make you not sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um actually that first one you talked about the close but no cigar. I mean, we're just it's we're just the tip of the iceberg with the number of idioms or phrases because a lot of these phrases I call them the the rock stars of the uh, of the English language they kind of don't follow any of the rules they're like little time capsules like they they made sense when they when they were created perhaps but now it's just sort of this rote learned thing that we say you know fish in a barrel or close but no cigar they kind of don't make any sense but unless you but they do you know, it's shorthand. Someone trying to learn English is just bamboozled by by the number of phrases and sayings. But yeah, there's also the the rally against the railing against the, you know, do you capitalise, you know, the word aunt and uncle when you're talking about them? You know, yeah. is irregardless a word? You know, uh, there's. I mean, we've actually got the whole back catalogue on our blog, so you're welcome to check out. We've got. Probably as many, almost as many as you've had um, podcast entries. There's been about 200 and something of them. Yeah, and of course we also explore things like uh, terms like, oh, I'm going to bag that seat. Oh, you know, I remember when I was little and I went to school and somebody said, oh, I'm going to bag that. I had no idea what they were talking about, but obviously I got it from context. Do you remember uh, what you wrote about um, where did the word bags come from? You know, I'm going to bag this, as in I'm going to, you know, uh, claim it to be mine. <laughs> yeah, it was all bags, not me. Yeah, it's um mm. that one was really um very British. Uh, it's probably about a hundred years old, um, and it, it came from probably uh, putting something into. You're going to put something into your bag. I'm going to add that to my bag. Um, mm. So you know that's where it was claiming something, and and uh, over time it became just more of a generic. I bags this or I bags that. Um, we still see it. You know, these days you might say I'm going to bag bag a few trophies, or the hunters might bag a wild animal. But yeah, so interesting backstories. Yeah, very interesting. So in terms of where do you get your ideas from in what to write about in the Q and A? Because there are so many things you could choose from. Uh, I've, I've got a whole big file which you just build up. It's you see it all around. I mean, you send me things. <laughs> you know, you'll say, "Hey, yeah. I just saw something." Maybe this. Um, we get readers send in readers of the newsletter. We certainly invite to send them in. But I mean, it's the English language. It, literally communicating every day. You'll probably come across a couple of things where you go, "Oh, 
why do we actually say it that way? Or you hear something on the radio or online, you see it, and you go, oh, that's, that's unusual. It's just, it's just being curious, I guess. You just yeah, sort of think, oh, that's weird. Where did that come from? Because <laughs> English is, is, well, it's, like I say, it's just a, it's a mess. <laughs> and then you have to research it, right? Yeah, I usually have um, like when I'm when I'm putting together one of these things, which does take a few hours to to write, mm. um, for sure. It um, I'll have so many tabs open on my browser. <laughs> I'm just going and checking and cross checking and and yeah, just trying to make sure that I've covered everything in in as shorter shorter amount of time as uh, reading time as possible. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's fun. It is fun. I love them. All right, so one of the other things Dean does, and I do as well, is we both write while we're on the go. Um, that's just sort of a habit we've gotten into. Last, last week we spoke about how Dean writes in cafes and he nurses his one coffee in his <laughs> key cup. I felt so um, bad about that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, both of us are kind of used to writing in cafes, on trains, in, you know, at bus stops or whatever and I know a lot of people who can't do that they have to be at their computer so for those people who want to be a little bit more mobile I thought we'd share a few tips like our top tips on how to write when mobile whether that's apps whether that's devices whether that's mindset what do you do that's useful to you on a practical level Dean to write while you're on the go um, probably the thing that assists me writing on the go is a really good set of noise cancelling headphones <laughs> to, to just shut out the world around me. So, I mean, I've, that's really important. That's one of the most important pieces of equipment is just yeah. because it's, even if I'm in that noisy cafe, if I really want to settle down and, and write, I mean, that's, mm. then I just, it's great to shut out shut out the world. So I'd really recommend um, that's really good if you want to get some really serious writing in. And what do you write on? Oh, well, I write on a laptop. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, I'm actually um, one of these people who can't imagine trying to write an entire thing on my mobile phone. My fingers are too fat. The, uh, the eyes and the U's get confused all the time. Um, <laughs> But they are. So I'm a little bit, well, new, new old school in that I will use my trusty laptop. Um, I need a proper tactile keyboard. Um, it, it does get a little bit tricky balancing it, say, if I'm on the train or something like that. But um, yeah. it's just because I touch type, I just, away I go. Um, it's, I need a proper, a proper setup um, in that respect. Yeah, so uh, whereas for me, I cannot lug around a laptop. Like I just become a very, very grumpy person. And also I my handbag won't fit very easily <laughs> a laptop. Or if it did fit a laptop, it's not going to fit anything else. So I can't – I'm not one of those laptop luggers because I just – my shoulder can't, can't be bothered. And so I started using the iPad – and an iPad with a proper keyboard, so like with a Logitech mm, keyboard that's, yeah. that's, you know, practically full size. It's just like typing on a um, computer. But even then, my previous iPad, it was too heavy for me. So I switched to my phone and bought a foldable keyboard because I have to type on a keyboard. I cannot type on the device. Um, I bought a foldable keyboard, but because it's foldable, the keys aren't quite 
in exactly the right place. Oh, so okay. It wasn't the most efficient way, like the, you know, the quote marks weren't quite in the right place or the at symbol wasn't quite in the right place. So it was okay, but not ideal. But when the new iPad came out, it was much lighter. And now that's definitely my go-to um, because it's light. I barely notice it when it's in my handbag. It has the big keyboard. Um, and in terms of apps, uh, I don't know what you use, Dean, but I use um, two things. One, Evernote a lot and Google Docs because then you can sync across all of your devices. So, for example, I'm going to the hairdresser later this afternoon and I bring my iPad with me the whole time and I work the whole time. And whatever document I'm working on, uh, when I get home and go back to my desktop, uh, it's, it's already synced. I can just keep on working as if I'm on the same device. What do you use? Yeah, Google Docs is, I mean, that's so good. Um, I definitely use Google Docs. I was just thinking when you were talking, I'm probably the most, the least mobile, mobile writer around <laughs> me with my big cumbersome laptop trying to balance <laughs> it on my knee. But no, Google Docs is so good for so long as a copywriter. I would be, even for sending off to clients, I'd send them off the Word doc. And you know the thing, I'd just have another read after I've sent it. I don't know why I do that. And I'd yeah. go, oh, I've got changes. Of course, with Google Docs, you send them the link. Yeah. or you share it with them, even if they don't read it for two hours, in that two hours, if you make changes, of course, yeah. they, they will change what they see. It is so, so good. And obviously, it's a lot more collaborative when you're working on large projects. That's yeah. a, really good, um, a really good one. Everything else, um, it's actually just, there's no, there's no secret other apps that I use um, regularly. Mm. It's just uh, my boring great. old laptop. I <laughs> I used yeah. to hate Google Docs. I used to despise it, but I have since become a convert and definitely realized there are way more benefits than drawbacks. So it's, it's yeah, it's awesome. Now, we have to mention, of course, if you haven't already registered your interest for Dean's upcoming real estate copywriting course, make sure you do. It's going to be awesome. I've it is going to be seen so it in the awesome. Works. It's, it's fantastic. Just... <laughs> All you need to do is go to writercenter.com.au slash real and uh, download a course outline because then you will be the first to be notified when it launches. And trust me, you will want to be one of the first to be notified. So writercenter.com.au slash real. So what's going to be covered in that course, Dean? Yeah, it's, it's going to be um, a great course for anyone who's looking to uh, get into the whole property uh, copywriting business, I guess. it's In the, in the course, we cover how to... Um, go and tour a house, get the all the things you need to ask an agent, that uh, we've got checklists of, of the sort of things that you um, will need to include in a property listing, um, good ways to describe things, um, how to work with uh, floor plan, plans, photographs, and, and really add value to the whole copywriting aspect of, of property listings. It's... Um, right through to, you know, whether it's a luxury property or the, the worst house on the block, it's really um, about how to get started um, as a, a property copywriter or for real estate agents, yeah. And also how to actually get work from real estate agents. Yeah, that's what I mean, how to actually get started, with, yeah. With some great case studies, we've got interviews with some awesome um, uh, real estate writers on how they got into it and they're all graduates of the Australian Writers' Centre as well. So very exciting. So remember, writercenter.com.au slash real. 
Now, apart from real estate copywriting and writing Q&As on um, the origins of unusual words in the English language, Dean <laughs> and also one of our team members, Sarah, are the brains behind the furious fiction competition that we run every month. So this is very, very exciting because so many listeners of this podcast participate in Furious Fiction and it's just so much fun reading through the entries and seeing the incredible talent out there. So the winner of Furious Fiction will be announced this week. This month, all the stories had to open with a question and with a bang and contain uh, in, the word... To, oh, they had to end with a bang, that's right end with a bang, and contain the word jungle, jam, and jackpot. So we received hundreds of entries, uh, and um, by the time you are listening to this, we will have announced the winner and shortlist, so head to the Writer Centre blog to check them Today's out. Today's the day. That's right. Yes. It's exciting. And go to writercenter.com.au slash blog. And yes, when's the next one, Dean? Yeah, so I was just going to say the next Furious Fiction, because this is a monthly competition, um, it's the first Friday of every month. So it's uh, August 3rd, so that's uh, coming up very soon. And in case there's some new listeners, how does it work? Well, it's on the first Friday of every month, uh, you'll get given a challenge and you have 55 hours. So that's basically till midnight on the Sunday uh, to write a 500 words or less story based on the criteria that we give you. So as we just said, this this week, uh, this month it was had to start with a question, bang, jackpot, all those things, um, and then they get judged and the, the winner wins $500 and then we do it all again the next month. So if you're listening in the future, hey, it's still going. Go and check and it out. And I would say that's probably one of the most lucrative uh, short story competitions yeah. in the country. 500 words, $500. So good luck, everyone, and make sure that you participate. If you want to be notified as soon as the clues are released, then make mm-hmm. sure you're part of the Furious Fiction fan club. Just go to furiousfiction.com.au. That's furiousfiction.com.au to make sure you're part of the fan club. It's free to join and you'll be notified of the clues as soon as they're announced. You will. And one last thing, it's free to enter. It is free to enter. So that's really important because, I mean, mean, sometimes it might go without saying, but a lot of the the times these sort of competitions have a a small entry fee, it's absolutely free and you can win $500. Yes. Awesome. It's very fun. All right, we also have another competition this week, and that is you guys have an opportunity to win one of three copies of The Desert Nurse by Pamela Hart, who is one of our creative writing presenters. In fact, she's the Director of Creative Writing at the Australian Writers' Centre. From the Casualty Tents, Thieve Awards and Operating Theatres, through the streets of Cairo during Ramadan, to the parched desert and the grim realities of war, Pamela Hart author of The War Bride, tells the heart-wrenching story of four years that changed the world forever. Now, if you want your opportunity to win an awesome copy of this book, go to writercenter.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 30th of July. But if you are listening to this podcast in the future, a bit like, you know, Michael J. Fox might have been, um, then, <laughs> then you will have another competition that will be uh, available for you to enter. So go to writercentre.com.au slash win.
So much yeah, winning. Dino. Oh, do we need that drum drum roll? No, I'll go straight into it. Are okay. you ready for the word of the week? No, I'm good, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, too bad. Go on then, go on. Let's hear it. I'm, I'm just I'm just easing everyone back into when Alison arrives back in the next episode. <laughs> just trying to. I love it. I love the word of the week. What is it? All right. The word of the week this week is invidious. Now, that might sound like, I don't know, Darth Vader's cousin, third removed. What was his name? Darth Sidious or something. Darth Invidious, yeah. Darth (laughs) Sidious, I think that one was, yeah. So it might sound like that, but it's not. It might also sound like insidious, the real word, but it has nothing to do with it. Invidious, which is I-N-V-I-D-I-O-U-S, invidious, means not likely to inspire envy, not likely to inspire envy. So you might say he had the invidious task of telling students they had to sit their exams again. Invidious. Do you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to go full geek on you here, Val. And go on. It, well, it's, it's from, I'm just looking it up and you'll be so proud of me. It's from yes. the Latin invidia, uh-huh. And which which meant basically what we're talking about envy, um, but then it got converted to old French, and so in in envy, Nvidia became envie, envy, <laughs> and that's where we got the envy sort of side, the spelling with the e oh. when it switched over to French. It did start I... off as i i n v i, and then it became e n v i, and then e n v y. So da-da, you won't that get that from Apple. that is full geek wow okay so all right awesome it came from the latin it's got nothing to do with dark sidious fantastic sidious yeah shall we move on to our writer in residence this week yes please well our writer in residence is someone you and i both know very well because she is the director of creative writing at the australian writer center she's also a really awesome human being and has written a whole ton like over 30 maybe over 35 maybe over 40 by now i've, I've lost track there's actually that many yeah. of books um ranging from adult fiction to children's to picture books to you know a, a fantasy but more recently she's been doing historical fiction and she's released um some awesome books like The War Bride and The Soldier's Wife and Letter to Italy. But her latest book is The Desert Nurse. And she is none other than Pamela Hart, also known as Pamela Freeman. So let's have a chat to Pamela. Thanks for joining us today, Pamela. Oh, my pleasure, Val. I've just read The Desert Nurse, your latest book. I loved every word. I love the story. I love the descriptions. I love the 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 detail. Um, before I mean, before I go on, for listeners who haven't um, read the book yet, tell us what it's about. Well, the desert nurse is about Evelyn Northey, who is a country girl from Tari. Um, who wants to be a doctor, but her father refuses to give her in her inheritance until she's 30, so she can't afford to go to university. So she becomes a nurse instead. And when war breaks out, World War One, she enlists um, and goes to Cairo and there gets involved with the nursing of the wounded from Gallipoli. 
So how did this idea form? Why did What made you interested in writing about, um, about nurses in this war? Well, it goes back to my first historical novel as Pamela Hart, which is The Soldier's Wife. And in that story, which is based on my own grandfather's experience at Gallipoli, um, he was wounded and he became very, very ill and almost died and was saved by good nursing. And in the book, that role is played by Jimmy Hawkins and he comes back to Australia <clears throat> to his wife. Um, but I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to write the story of the nurses because so many lives were saved by good nursing and um, I felt that their, their story was worth telling. Now, of course, people don't have to have read The Soldier's Wife. Um, oh, no, not at all. No, it's a completely standalone novel. But yep. those who have read it will recognise Jimmy as uh, one of the characters. Yep, for sure. Now, you're a busy lady. <laughs> you are not only the Director of Creative Writing at the Australian Writers' Centre and you teach and mentor our students and they all love Which I you. Love, I have to say. Oh, they, they love you back. Um, so you also just released a um, novel for children. You're about to release, so, and the, the novel is called Fastest Ship, Fastest Ship in Space, and the you're about to release a picture book, which is called what again? Um, Amazing Australian Women. So it's about Ama 12 historical women from Australia. Um, some of them you'll know and some of them you won't. And you just released The Desert Nurse. How do you even fit all this in? <laughs> um, yeah, well, sometimes it's tricky. I must admit at the moment I'm trying to write the new book, the one that comes after this one. Um, oh, wow. But, uh, yeah, the, the historical research takes a lot of time. Um, yes. But fortunately I'm a research junkie, so it doesn't feel like work, that part of it. All right, uh, so that's what I want to talk about because there's detail in this book that brings it, you know, to life to the point where I actually wanted to enlist and become a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so where would you start in something in, in terms of research for the – and I want to add, though, for anyone who hasn't read it yet, there's so much detail in this but it's not heavy-handed at all. It is woven in so that um, – you don't think, oh, my God, the, the the author's done a lot of research, as you do in some books. Some books, yeah. Um, so where – but but it obviously underpins a story and brings it to life and makes it really credible. So where in the world did you start with this research? Well, we're really lucky in Australia. We have the Australian War Memorial. And because Gallipoli was almost immediately understood to be an extraordinarily important event in Australian history. The families of Gallipoli veterans and of the nurses and doctors who served them, um, they kept all the letters and they kept the diaries of those people. Mm. So where in other wars people kind of went, oh, I don't know what these letters are, just throw them out, because Gallipoli was already established even by 1916, which was the first Anzac Day celebrations in Sydney, um, it was already a, a significant event in our country's history. And so there's an enormous amount of material of letters and diaries and the wonderful Australian War Memorial has digitised it all. Right. So I spend a lot of time reading diaries um, and also a terrific book called More Than Bombs and Bandages, which looks at 
the actual physical work that nurses did in World War One. But um, then you have to look beyond the letters and the diaries because quite often people wrote things to reassure their families. Mm. Um, they didn't want them to know what the truth was like because then they would worry about them. And so they often only talked about the good things in their letters. Um, but there are official war photographers and so you have to go and look at the actual pictures. And then I was really lucky. One of the nurses actually was a, a, an amateur photographer and um, there are a lot of photographs of uh, the nurses, the orderlies, the ambulances and the wards in um, the Heliopolis Palace uh, Hospital. So I was very lucky there that um, her name was Lil McKenzie and she was a very tall, kind of robust woman who had a real interest in photography and um, uh, it was delightful looking at those photos. So apart from the research, which clearly you really enjoy because as you, you've described yourself as a research junkie, what the, I mean there's a great story in this, regardless mm -hmm. of the research, there's a great story in this book. What uh, the story of Evelyn and, and um, yep. her wanting to be a doctor and the people and characters she encounters along the way. When you first started the book, how much of the actual story and plot did you already work out in your head or know um, was going to happen? The, the main part that I knew was the beginning and and what happened during Gallipoli. But I always knew that it was a love story. Mm -hmm. So the other character, the main character, is William Brent, who is a doctor who has had polio as a child and therefore isn't fit for the army. And this happened a lot. There were a lot of people who weren't able to get in who, who wanted to. And he decides to go to Cairo and offer his help. <clears throat> and this is based actually on something that did happen. One of the other characters in the book, Dr. Agnes Bennett, um, a, a woman doctor, what is a real person. Mm -hmm. And when she went to Cairo, she turned up on the station at Alexandria when um, the wounded from Gallipoli were being brought in and sent to Cairo and they were completely overwhelmed with the wounded and she just started helping and they um, not only allowed her in to help but also um, she ended up being the first woman captain in the British Army. Uh, so she, she was the leader of a huge change and so I knew from historical evidence that if a doctor turned up at that moment and started to help, they would keep him. Um, and mm. so William William wants to do his bit, um, but he has, you know, some physical uh, liabilities. Um, and I, always, I wanted it to be a story about two people who were determined not to get married um, mm. because Evelyn, because she suffered quite a lot under her father's control, doesn't ever want to give a man control over her again. And, of course, in those days when women got married, their husbands virtually owned them and everything they owned. And William doesn't think he's fit to marry. So I always knew it was about um, – it was a story about overcoming that, you know, that um, it was a story about a love story between two people who felt that they would never be able to marry. Yeah. And – so all the events in the story had to work towards that goal. And so Evelyn wants to become a doctor and her father is against it. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously in 
15, 16, there are very different attitudes to women, especially women becoming doctors, than what they are today. How did you determine um, – it, it, was that as easy to find out as the historical, you know, facts? Were, were the attitudes oh, yes, and yes, opinions because, easier to – because they knew they were trailblazers. Those women wrote about what happened to them. Um, so women had become doctors – well, 60 years ago was the, the – before that was the first female doctor in America – um, and since the 1880s, Sydney University had allowed women um, to study there, although not to take the degree immediately. And Edinburgh University certainly had had almost a whole generation of people go through before then. So it wasn't so much um, kind of institutional barriers. It was social barriers. Yes. Uh, and in particular, financial barriers because it was very, very expensive to go to university, as it was indeed um, in Australia until the 70s. Mm. So um, it was almost impossible for an ordinary person to get themselves to uni. And that's why I had to have her have an inheritance that would make it possible. Yep. Now, this when you're reading this book, obviously it's set in, you know, 1960, the early 1900s, during the war, and um, one of the things is the characters really come to life in terms of the dialogue. How did you um, determine what was the dialogue of the day? I read a lot of contemporary novels. So I read a lot of novels like from 1915. Ah, 1920. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, so that's the only way, really. And even then, because you know, you'd never have a novel where people really swear, published in 1915. Yes. But we know they did swear. Um, yeah. So you have to, you have to use a little bit more imagination. Um, not that there's a lot of swearing in the book, but. Um, no. <laughs> You know, you have to kind of think, okay, well, when novelists were writing there, they were writing under a kind of social censorship yeah. and you have to look beyond that. Um, but a lot of it is simply reading reading newspaper reports of court um, court sessions because there you have right. verbatim, people take down verbatim dialogue, yep. that kind of thing, yeah. So on a practical level, apart from reading the novels of the day and court transcripts, like you say, um, did you just read it and let it osmosize into you or did you take notes and say, and think I'm going to grab no. that phrase and William might say something like that? You know what I mean? Yeah, no, for me it's about um, kind of diving into the world and letting that world surround you and fill you up. And then it will come out naturally. Whereas I think if – I mean, sometimes you, you notice a really good phrase and you think, oh, yeah, good, I'll use that one. Um, and also, of course, I use my own family. I mean, my dad was born in 1923. Mm. So a lot of his old expressions, things that he would have said when he was a boy, would have been in currency then as well. Mm. Um, and – no, it's just I think it's just a matter of knowing your characters also, knowing what class they're from and what experiences yeah. they've had and it, it's it's more complicated than just going that's a good phrase. Yes. I think obviously this is something that is you, – you've been – you've written 
a billion books. <laughs> 35. Okay, 35. I've lost count, you see. And so it's something that is, it just comes naturally to you and and you teach uh, courses in dialogue as well. So what, well, what do you think is the biggest mistake people make when they are writing dialogue? Uh, formality. Oh, so, you mean being too formal? Being too formal. Yeah, having whole sentences, not having sentence fragments. And also quite often the dialogue doesn't um, doesn't mirror the state of the, the emotional state the person is in. So it, it, if someone is very upset, they don't speak in formal sentences. They don't speak in complete ideas. They interrupt themselves. They pause. Um, they they use repetition um, so it's about listening. You know, the, the best advice I can give to someone who wants to write good dialogue is to listen really hard. Every writer I know is a terrible eavesdropper. Um, <laughs> I mean, I love it when people have fights on mobile phones in, in public transport. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> because you really okay. can people talk, you know. And um, so a lot of it is that. And, of course, I started as a scriptwriter. Uh, yes. originally with ABC Kids TV yep. and working with actors teaches you a lot about dialogue. Yep. It teaches you a lot about what can be said naturally and what falls naturally to the ear um, and, and I learnt a lot from the actors I worked with. And this book, The Desert Has Miniseries, written all over it, may oh, I God, add. That be lovely. I, I just that be kept fun, yeah. thinking, oh, I can just totally see this. I was seeing the opening credits. I was <laughs> picturing all of the sets. But anyway, um, what were some of the biggest challenges in writing this particular book? The biggest challenge was the unrelenting nature of the work to be able to represent that the eight months of the Gallipoli campaign and the book goes past that but that was the most difficult part to write and the eight months of the Gallipoli campaign from the second lot of reinforcements through which is when she's there um nine months I guess she she's she never stops yeah and to be able to get that across to the reader without boring them without overwhelming them with you know operation after operation and fever after fever and to make that both clear how unrelenting it was and yet not make it boring that was the biggest challenge definitely well you definitely succeeded that because it's interesting that you've said that that is the biggest challenge because as I was reading it I just felt that excitement and there was there wasn't there weren't any boring sections at all. I just felt that excitement, and and just kept thinking, oh my god, this is amazing. Oh my god, that's why I felt like I needed to go and enlist. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, even though I've never been interested in becoming a doctor before, um, but it sounded so interesting and so exciting. But you've obviously you what I really what, hard. <laughs> Yeah, so what did you, on that point then, on a practical mm. level, what techniques or things did you do to do that? Because now that I think of it, you have you have conveyed so much information, you've really conveyed the extent of the busyness and the sheer breadth of the stuff that these nurses had to do. What did you do to achieve your goal? Well, every scene 
where you actually see her working or or assisting in an operation, every scene had to do something else as well. So it had to advance the relationship or or hinder the relationship. It had to give her an idea about her future or it had to inspire her to do more or, you know, it had to have some emotional effect on both her and William um, whenever he was in the scene also. So you can't just go, well, this is what they did. You have to show the effect it had on each of them. And then you have to pick those scenes, you know, which operation would have that effect, which scene where with a dying patient would change her, you know, so, so you kind of do it backwards. You look for the function of the scene first, and then you pick of the many, many elements of her day, you Mm. pick the element that will best represent that function. Right. Okay, so start off with the emotional element first and then go into the detail of the Start off with how you want her to change. Yeah. How do you want this to change her? Well, what would do that? Yeah. And then how did you then go back and think, oh, a leg amputation will will serve that function or a shrapnel wound would – fixing a shrapnel wound would serve that function? How did you – did you then go um, back to a list of a list of operations or no I mean my reading had given me a list in my head you know I, yes. not a, a formal list I knew I had to set up the fact that amputations were done regularly because later in the book an amputation becomes very important so we had to see that happen to other people um, so I you know it's it's mentioned a couple of times before that final one mm-hmm. Um and other than that, it's a question, I guess, of um, variety. I, did, I didn't want people to get bored, you know. Mm. I, I didn't want us to be doing the same thing, even though they did. You know, they did do 10 amputations a day. Mm. Um, they did do 20 shrapnel removals, you know, but yes. I didn't want the reader to get bored so that's why you know I would look for variety in in because there was a huge variety as well as repetition. Mm. What was the easiest or maybe not easiest the most flowing thing about writing this book? I just love William. (laughs) Oh okay. I like Evelyn. Obviously, Evelyn's a fantastic character to write, you know, because she's she's very she's very determined and intelligent and troubled, and that's yes. a great combination. But I just love William. You know, I, I, he's probably my favourite hero so far that I've written. Um, wow. He's th- his problem. You know, the polio is actually based on my family doctor. So he Kim uh, Kim Ung had polio as a child in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. and um, survived that and became a doctor and is just the most wonderful, wonderful doctor. So when I was looking for a disability that um, that William could have, that I knew a doctor could have and still be a good doctor, mm-hmm. that was there in front of me. And it, it also is a great one because, of course, thanks to vaccines, we don't have polio anymore. So it's a good historical item as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just love William, you know, um, I think he's just a wonderful person and I liked writing him. I liked being him while I was writing him. Is this the last we're going to see of William? Oh. 
<laughs> that had not occurred to me, I must admit. Are you serious? Yeah, no, I hadn't thought about that. Um, oh. Well, you know okay. that, that sometimes I do bring characters back. So, yes. I mean, Jimmy's in this book. And in the next book, which is called Dancing with the Prince of Wales, you may remember in The War Bride, um, mm. the main character's best friend, Jane, goes oh, on yes. the stage. Yes. And the next book will be her story, her and Jonesy's story. In London, they go to London on the stage there. So I do have a habit of bringing characters back. Um, and maybe, I don't know, I really seriously had not thought about that before, but maybe, who knows? That's bizarre that you had not thought about that. But anyway, <laughs> um, all right, look, so you've obviously, this book is out. You're obviously writing the next one. Yes, I am. Um, uh, where are you at on it? Like how? Oh, have well, you... not far enough. Um, right, I'm, like, have, I'm in the middle of writing it in the first draft. And so I've done does, a lot of research. Yeah, so this does way. this require the same level of research and or is it? In some ways because it's new, it's London. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I already knew a fair bit about Australia during World War One, but this is 1920s London, flappers and mm -hmm. um, the Charleston uh, and um, and the Prince of Wales, who was very much part of the theatre scene at that time. Uh, so so I ha I've had to do a huge amount of research. Um, and, and characters like Fred Astaire and Adele Astaire and Noel Coward and um, Ivan, Ivan Novello. So uh, when you're writing about real people, you have to do a huge amount of research. Yes. So you, you've mentioned that you're a research junkie and like, like – mm -hmm. You, this again, it may be something that you already do naturally, but if you had to break it down, because I just got a question only yesterday um, that's, you know, a writer was thinking of doing the right now, research later kind of approach. You right. obviously are research first. Um, Most, and then you mostly. do more as you go through yes. when you need to. Yeah, But from the sounds of it, correct me if I'm wrong, you research a whole heap of stuff and it and immerse yourself in that world and then are able to write about it but do you have a technique of recording certain things you know in a certain way do you have a a, a three-step process perhaps you're gonna <laughs> hate your me well. I, just, I just read things <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> I just read stuff and I <laughs> copy photos of the internet um and uh I do, when I'm reading on my Kindle, I do highlight things, you know, and then print them out. But, you know, I hardly ever look at them. Um, it just stays in your head. And it's basically in my head, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, and then I will go back. Say I mentioned that Bombs and Bandages book, yes. um, which is a fantastic research, resource. Well, I would remember, oh, she explained how to give a, a quinine injection mm -hmm. in that book. I would go back and look at that when I needed to write that scene. Right. So um, so for very specific details, I'll just know where it is and then I will yes. go back and find it to write. Okay, the in that thing. case, is it like because, you know, when I used to do exams at school, <laughs> I would remember everything but literally the minute after the exam was over, I would forget yep. everything. Is yep. that the case with you? Once you're onto your next book, you've forgotten sort of those details. You've, you've gone into a new world and you can't Love keep it, it all in goes, your brain. But because – because this is cumulative, you know, because I'm researching the same period, yes, some of it stays. 
But no, it is a bit like having an exam. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> like that. And then, you know, a lot of it would just, I'll know how to find it again. Yes. He said to me, where did you get that detail from? I'll know where it comes from. Mm-mm. But, yeah. Um, okay. So then writers often forget what they've written. Yes, you know, yes. Quite absolutely. often I've talked to friends and we go, you know, I had a look at that book the other day because I had to read from it at a reading and I completely forgotten writing that chapter. Yep. Yeah, so I, I think it's like right. an exam. So with this book, um, now that you've written 35 books, do you <laughs> still have a writer's group and do you still workshop any yeah. of your stories? Yes, I do. I workshop everything. Well, not – not Amazing Australian Women. That's a non-fiction book. But my sure. fiction, certainly, I would workshop everything I write. Um, my husband is my first reader right. and he is also a writer. He's just published his first book uh, for children, The Lighthouse at Pelican Rock. Um, right. And he's become a fantastic And is that a novel? Is- it's a novel for primary school students, yeah. Yeah, great. Um, and what's his name? Stephen Hart. And it's the so life that's where I got the heart room. from when I became yes. Pamela Hart. Awesome. Um, and uh, he's a great first reader. And then depending on the book, I have other readers. So I have people who read my children's work for me um, and I have people who read my adult f- fiction for me mm-hmm. uh, and I do for them, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I would never – no, I would never write anything without workshopping it. I'm, I'm so convinced of the value of getting uh, other people's opinions because quite often you think you've done something because you know all this stuff. It's particularly important when you've done all this research because yeah. you think you've explained something because you've got used to an idea that was true then mm. and then your reader will go, I have no idea what she's talking about. <laughs> And you go, mm. oh, but blah, 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 no, never heard of it, you know. Yeah. And that's happened more than once. So, so I think it's crucial. No, go on. Yeah. So oh, I think fiction needs to be workshopped. Yes. So in case there's some newbie writers listening, can you just sure. define workshopping and, yeah, okay. and what you mean? So I would give my work – usually I wait until I have a first draft um, and I would give my work to – people to read whom I trust mm-hmm. and who know something about writing. It's no good giving it to your mum yeah. or to your friend because either they'll go, oh, I really liked it or, <laughs> oh, I don't know if I can get into it, but not, they won't know why and why yes. is really important. Um, so you want someone who can say not, oh, I don't know how I couldn't get into it, but to say, well, really the story doesn't start until Chapter 3. I think that's where you should have your beginning. Yes. Um, so somebody who has who has some experience uh, in thinking about writing. Yes. And then they will come back and they will say things like, the story doesn't start until Chapter 3 or I don't think you've really established why she's doing that here or this scene was very long, can't you cut it down because I got a bit bored by the end of it, mm. you know. Um, and different people have different skills. So, um, for example, my friends get me to do structural read because they know yep. I'm a structure girl. Um Whereas I might ask somebody else to do a dialogue, you know, just make sure the characters are working for me. Um, depending on, you know, where the book is at, what what draft you're at. Um, 
so you learn which of your workshopping friends is good at picking up certain problems and and you listen to them about those problems yeah and then you try and solve the problems um, mm. but the important thing is to find your solution to it so that so people will give you suggestions and this is absolutely true of editors as well Val it's not just the people you workshop with Editors are really good at identifying problems, but they want you to find the solution. And um, my editor at Hachette, Bernadette Foley, who teaches for us, um, she said to me once, we like, we prefer authors to find the solution because then it's truer to the book. Mm. Um, so listen to other people's suggestions, but follow your own instincts about finding the right solution. But fix the problem. If they identify a problem, it's there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you need to, if you're, and particularly if everybody who's read it has said the same thing. Yes. It's absolutely true. Uh, yeah. And then you you have to find fixes. And of course, one of the places that you facilitate a lot of workshopping for our students is in the six month write your novel program. Yes. Which absolutely. you you take and Bernadette Foley, as you mentioned from her shirt, um, takes. Uh, what um, what do you think is the most valuable part of that six-month Write Your Novel program for students? I think there are three. Can I do three? Three, the first, go. first one is it forces you to write. So um, you commit to something. You commit to, to submitting 20,000 words over the course of the, of, of the six months hmm. and people need that. Some people really, really need deadlines. Yeah. Um, not everybody has or could have um, the, the – it's not even self-discipline because a lot of the time it's about giving yourself permission to do it when there are so yeah. many other demands on your time. And I think doing the course over the six months really gives you permission to concentrate on your writing for that period and it gives other people – like it. People say, oh, come out with us. And you go, no, I can't. I've got to write. And they go, oh, come on, come anyway. But if you say, I've got to do the work for my writing course, they leave you alone. Yes. So I think I think that's really important. The second thing is the workshopping. You learn as much from reading and critiquing other people's work as you do from them critiquing yours. And every student we've had through has said that. Because it teaches you a way of thinking about writing and objectivity about the work that you can't learn any other way. Mm. But the most important thing, I think, is that at the end of the course, you're divided into groups and the people in your group read your entire novel. Mm. And as far as I know, this is the only writing course in the world where that happens. And it's very important because new writers are often very good at scenes and quite good at character, but not so good at structure. Yeah. And you can't get that feedback unless someone reads your whole book. Um, so I think that's one of the things that makes that course stand out from others because mm. um, getting three, three structural edits effectively at the end of the course from people who have read the entire book and then we help we teach people how to to do a structural edit. Um, that I think is immensely valuable. Definitely. So you, and we've already mentioned that you have just released a children's novel. You're about to release a picture book. You've just released a desert nurse. What? 
how do you plan your um, how do you plan your your career in a sense? How do you plan what's going to be released when so that you can actually get it all done and and so that it will be released in a way that makes sense for your career as an author? Okay. Well, part of that's up to the publisher, obviously. Mm-hmm. I'm a book a year author for Hachette. Mm-hmm. So um, I have one book a year come out with them and with Piatka's new in the UK, which is part of Hachette there. Um, so they tell me when it's going to come out, basically. Uh, that's And they choose that according to where they think the book will best fit. So I started out being a Mother's Day author. But recently, many publishers have been releasing a lot of books at Mother's Day, which kind of cuts the sales down for all of them. And so they've brought me back to July. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of when it comes out, I'm, I'm committed to a book a year for Hachette, mm-hmm. which is fantastic that they want that. Um, and it's up to them as to when it comes out. So <clears throat> I guess I fit my children's work in around the – adult novel because the adult novel obviously takes uh, a lot of time but um, quite often I'll be writing the kids book while they're doing the structural edit on the adult novel you know so um, and when I've done kind of four hours of research it's quite nice to turn to writing about kakadu which is what I'm doing at the moment Mm -hmm. for a non-fiction picture book so um it's a kind of light and shade thing. Um, yes. Yeah, but I haven't had a proper job since 1989, Val, <laughs> and I've got quite good at juggling a whole number of different projects since then. So, I reckon. All right. So, and finally, what would be your top three tips for aspiring writers? Mm-hmm. Right. As that's Pat number Walsh one. Says, yes. That's number one. You know, the number one reason your book won't be published is that you haven't written it. Um. And, and that's flippant, but what that means is you have to give yourself permission to write, you have to give yourself permission to take it seriously, and you have to give it priority. Mm. Um, so a lot of people say to me, oh, I'd love to write a book if I only had the time. And I say to them, do you watch two television shows a week? And then I go, yes. I say, you've got time to write a novel. Yeah. Um, so two hours a week, I mean, it might take you, a while, but you could write a novel in two hours a week. Yep. Um, so the second thing, you know, write, keep writing. The second thing is find your tribe, find your community. Mm. Um, and obviously one of the things I love about the Writers' Centre is that we offer that option for people, you know, that we are a tribe and we are a community and we're a very welcoming one. Um, and beyond that, there's also – possibilities of finding other tribes in speculative fiction or children's fiction or romance. There are people, other people out there doing the same stuff that you're doing and you need to find them. It's only an internet search away. Yeah. Um, And then the third one would be workshopping, you know, Mm. uh, learning to take criticism, learning to be professional, learning to really listen to what people are saying about your work um, and to be prepared to make the changes that are necessary to make it better because the second reason your book won't be published is that it's not good enough. And by that, I don't mean that you're not talented enough. It's that people, they do 
too fast. They they write a first draft and then they send it off to the publisher. But, you know, only a handful of first drafts in the history of the world have been good enough. So people have got to put the time in to do not just the first draft and the second draft and the third draft, but the eighth and the ninth and the tenth if that's what's necessary. Yeah. So this picture book that I'm doing, Kakadu, it's a companion book to Desert Lake, which came out mm. last year. Mm-hmm. I I don't know how many drafts we've done on that, but it must be more than 50. Wow. Okay. It took – yeah. So – you know, I do practice what I preach. Yeah. Um, picture books are very hard to write, obviously, because you have so few words. They all have to yep. be perfect. So typically they would have more more drafts than a novel. But yeah. even so, you know, you've got to be prepared to write and rewrite. Um, and it's really hard to do that alone, I think. Yeah. I think it's much easier to do that in a group, to do that with with somebody helping, somebody coordinating, mentoring, whatever that is, mm-hmm. um, which is why I love teaching at the centre. You know, I love ta- – yeah, I don't know – I'm sure you do know that we have um, Margaret Morgan, one of our students, has her first novel coming out uh, yeah. in August, a major, a major title for Penguin Random House. And it, it's just been fast, fab, fantastic to see fa- – fab fantastic, yeah, to see <laughs> – Margaret coming from, you know, her first class with us through to the point where I said yeah, to her, very exciting. Pitch it now. Mm. And um, it's so exciting yeah, when you can very, see very someone exciting. develop their skills and, and grab hold of their identity as an author um, and make it. Uh, and, yeah, I, I think having a tribe and that, that workshopping support really makes a difference. Wonderful. And on that note, thank you so much for talking to us today, Pamela. Thanks, Val. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. There you go, Pamela Hart, also known as Pamela Freeman. Just an awesome book, The Desert Nurse. All right, so let's move on to our – we've got a working writer's tip this week, haven't we, Dean? You have one. Do share. (laughs) Yeah, we do. Um, Well, see – I do a lot of copywriting locally and for a lot of different clients and there's something which um, is really important and it's going to sound really obvious, but it's communication. So it doesn't matter how big the, the, yeah, (laughs) sounds pretty obvious, doesn't it? It doesn't matter how big the job is. um, It's just really important to let your client know where you're at, I think. Oh, yeah. so let's say you're the client. Let's role play for a bit. Let's role play. Okay. <laughs> so let's say, I don't know, let's say on Monday you said yeah. um, you gave me a job and I said, okay, I'll, um, I'll get back to you this week with it. Yes. Okay. As so in now we're finished. 
yeah, let's say it was a, just a small job and, and I said, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll get it back to you. I'll finish it and return it to you, email it to you this week or yeah. kept it, we kept it fairly open like that. Yeah. Um, it's really important, say we get to Wednesday, um, just to send them an update and say, and literally email you know, with an update or, or touching base just to say, hey, just letting you know, um, you know, I'm going to get this through on Friday or tomorrow or mm. you'll have it later on. It's, it's one of those things which often what, what we do, and I've done it a lot in the past as well, is we often go, la, 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 I'm not listening, I'm not going to talk to you until, <laughs> I've, until I've sent the finished product. That's but how we do it, we go, la, 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 la. <laughs> yeah, but sometimes it's just really nice from a client's point of view, if they're going to get the job on a Friday anyway, it'd be really nice for them to, you know, Get a get an email just to say, hey, I haven't forgotten about you or that kind of thing. Um, just to manage your expectations to say, um, hey, just just touching base on the job that we spoke about. Um, we're on track, and I'll get it to you on Friday. Or because yeah, they would much the rather will appreciate it. Yeah, they'd much rather if you actually were honest and said, hey, look, it's actually going to be a, a day later, or perhaps if you have, you know, the, and you actually told them that in advance for the rather than get to the day it was due, or mm. you know, and to go where is it? That's just in a case where it might be running late, or if you've if you've left things open, just to keep them informed at every stage. If it's a big job, that might mean every Monday morning you say, hey, this is where we're at with this job. You know, you're just checking in with them as you do. Um, if the, if it's the sort of thing that you're not going to be talking to them in person person about I mean it's, yeah, it's obvious it's good but it's to really give them that level of comfort yeah, I think it's very important yeah good they were, there will, yeah there will never be a situation where they will say I wish you hadn't emailed me to let me know where you're at yeah. <laughs> do you know and what I mean if there are but, any issues um, it's important to identify them early and nip them in the bud because I remember being appalled by the behavior of a particular writer who, you know, discovered some issues with the particular job that she was working on and it was going to require a great deal more of her time. But she did not communicate that at all with the client. She just seethed and she did the job and at the end of the job, she gave the job, to the finished product to the client and a huge bill, a, a, a much bigger bill than the one agreed. Because she had done that, the work, you know, involved in that bill. But she never communicated that with the client when she discovered the problem. Instead, she just seethed about it and surprised the client with a big bill where she, she should have communicated with them from the beginning. The client could have then made a decision or certainly it would have set the expectations of the client so that the client knew that it was going to cost that much or the client may have been able to find a resolution to whatever problem that, that you know, the, the writer was facing. Communication is yeah. vital when you're dealing with clients, yeah. It's, it's actually really, um, because keeping clients, like getting them is hard enough, keeping yeah. them is really important and that's where communication is really, really, um, just one final thing on that is yes. when you get sent a brief, even if you yeah. can't work on it then and there, Make sure you open it up, check all the files are there because there's nothing worse than thinking, Absolutely. oh, I'm going to start, start work on it the night before and realize, ah, oh, they haven't sent me the file. Like, or the files are corrupted or something. Exactly. It's, it's, it's kind of just embarrassing to have to go back exactly. to them at the hour and go, oh, even if, because often a lot, of, a lot of the time, you, you know, people just reply, okay, thanks, got it, yeah. um, when they first get the things, but they don't look at the things they and they don't open they, it. 
So and sure, important. if you want to do the job at the 11th hour, fine, but you need to make sure you've got all the materials because it's going to look really silly if you have to go back and say, actually, I've only just now realised that you didn't send me that file or that yeah. whatever I needed. Really so good really, It's a really good thing to make sure you've got everything up front and then you can manage your time, but yeah. Hmm. All right, so this brings us to the end of this week's episode. What are you doing in the coming week, Dean? Um, probably more of the, um, the same, probably sending some of those update emails to clients. <laughs> um, I've got a, <laughs> got a new Q&A to write, so I'll be dipping into the, uh, the vault to uh, have a look at what we'll be looking at this week. Um, yeah, lots of general copywriting um, to be done. I'll be on Twitter as well because after last week you said that I wasn't on Twitter a lot. I jumped on Twitter and I it, it was most it was mostly just live tweeting MasterChef, actually, but, you know, <laughs> <All right. laughs> I, I thought so, I'd show you. How about you, oh, Val? What are you up to? Oh, I will be doing all the things. But I wanted to say on behalf of myself and Alison and all our listeners, thank you so much for standing in for Alison for the last three weeks. Oh, we really appreciate right. it and for sharing your insight. And you would be welcome uh, back as a replacement Co-host, anytime Alison decides to go to Canada. <laughs> they're, they're very big shoes to fill, so it's, it's been lovely. Uh, thank you for having me. All right. Um, where do we find you online, Dean? Um, well, Twitter. No, um, <laughs> you'll find me on yeah, you'll find me on Twitter, Instagram under my name, Dean Curry, and uh, my website. What about you? Where do we find you? Your website, which is. Oh, deancurry.com.au. <laughs> and then K-O-O-R-E-Y. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, And you'll yeah, find me at Valerie Koo. That's K-H-O-O on Instagram mainly these days and Twitter. And, of course, make sure you connect with all of us, including Dean and Alison, in the So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook. It's free to join. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community. We'd love to see you in there and connect with you. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. 